I talked about equanimity. And another word for equanimity really is the freedom that the Buddha described when in the midst of our experience we can find a sense of balance. When the Buddha talked about freedom, he really was talking about freedom from all of our habitual conditioning to react to life, to either react because we want more of something or to react because this feels bad, push it away. In a sense, that was the prison that he described that we all find ourselves in and that our practice is designed to wake us up out of that our grasping, our resistance, is really the source of our suffering. So what I'd like to do tonight is to continue this theme from last week, but focus mostly on addiction, on how our grasping and aversion in its most blown up form really takes the shape of addiction. And it's so pervasive uh, in us as individuals and a society it deserves some attention. Now, I've paid a lot of attention to addiction myself over the years, both dealing with my own addictions, people in my family, friends, students, clients. It's been a central theme. I ended up doing my doctoral research on the nature of addiction and how meditation might be an intervention. And um, so when I thought, well, tonight I think I'll do a talk on it. In a sense, I got overwhelmed, like, how am I going to stuff in all this? Then I realized that was addictive, too, this need to pack everything in. So um, so I'll talk about some of it, and maybe we'll continue this as a theme of it, something that feels useful to you. Meditation is training in present, centered mindfulness. It's training to be here. and the first and most radical realization we have when we sit down to meditate is how we're not here much. Do you notice that? We get tugged around by all our experience, all our wanting and fantasizing and fearing and planning and worrying. We're just not here a whole lot. We find that out. The realization happens, our lack of presence is exposed not just on the cushion, But as we deepen in our practice, it starts being revealed throughout our life, how much we're tugged around. What gets exposed really is the degree to which we're trapped in our day, in addictive tendencies to grasp onto certain feeling states and try to control things and try to avoid what's unpleasant. We see it playing out in certain key realms. For most of us, our addictions play out either in terms of consuming, it's a big one for many, food or smoking cigarettes or caffeine, drugs. For many, it plays out in relationships with each other, the different kind of codependent behaviors that now have become a common part of our culture's language. We see it sexually with each other. We see it in our compulsive thinking patterns that we have. We see it in our work. Pretty much everywhere, right? It's all over. So the first thing is, well, what is addiction? What's the difference between addiction and just wanting things to be a certain way? 
Now, according to the Buddhist Abhidhamma, the Abhidhamma is the teachings of Buddhist psychology uh, from the Theravadan school of Buddhism, all of our experience, everything we experience is either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Everything has a feeling tone. That's called Vedana. And those experiences, those feeling tones are followed by a very natural and conditioned attraction, attracted to what is pleasant, a disliking for what is unpleasant. And for many, what we find is when it's neutral, we fall asleep. We just don't notice things. That impulse that follows pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is called tanha. Now, in the Buddha's teaching, this isn't a bad thing. It's not bad that we get drawn to what's pleasant, that we don't like what's unpleasant. Rather, there's a natural, healthy role for these impulses in our development as a being on the planet. To have a healthy development of self, and as most of you know, you can't transcend the self until you have a self. I mean, there's a sequence in terms of unfolding that it's healthy to, to come into a sense of beingness, and then we open out of that to a much more full sense of wholeness. But on the way there, to have these impulses that help us to navigate so we take care of ourselves and find the food and the sex and the belonging and the self-esteem and the integration we need, these impulses guide us, telling us what's pleasant. The impulses away from what's unpleasant guide us. They help us to navigate, to protect against threats to our being, right? So there's a healthy role for this conditioning. The question is, what causes the shift from these healthy tendencies to discriminate, pleasant, unpleasant, and have a response to where it becomes addictive? How it's understood both in Buddhist psychology and much of Western psychology is that attraction turns to addictive craving, dislike turns to pathological aversion or anger or hatred when our basic needs are not met, when there are major obstacles to our basic needs, when in some way, instead of being loved and understood, we were ignored, mistreated, misunderstood, violated that out of that wounding, the natural tendency to move towards pleasure becomes grasping. The natural tendency to watch out for what's difficult becomes major aversion, hatred, and trauma. Out of that wounding. With addiction, when we have this intensified reactivity, there's a solidifying of the sense of identification we become the I that really wants or really doesn't want, and all of our life starts to begin to be organized and wrapped around it. Look at when you see a major addiction. Everything gets organized, the thoughts, the behaviors, the emotions around getting what I want, not getting what I don't want. There's a sense of never enough. Okay, let's look a little closer. So we have this basic longing for love, to be loved. And as many of us know, in these 
ways that our parents were unable to offer it, out of, out of our experience of childhood senses, there's a sense of being ignored, not attended to. So what frequently happens in one example, addictive behavior around eating, that when we're not fed the nourishment of love, we grasp onto food and that becomes the substitute. It could as well be that we turn on to work to prove ourselves so we can gain acceptance or gain appreciation. But in any of them, we get fixated. For some, it's around safety. We have this basic need to feel some basic sense of safety. When it's violated, we fixate onto our anger and our defenses and our armor. The problem is with these substitutes, with the food or with the work or whatever we're fixating on is that they don't work. That we get a temporary hit and there's always a need for more. Now this description of how addiction happens really applies to almost everyone I've ever met. Almost everyone I know has in some way fixated, in some way taken the natural need and longing for love the need for safety, and fixated on certain schema of armor and workaholism or food or something to soothe and comfort and relieve what is perceived as obstacles to that need. It's a universal force that we would have a longing for eros, for love, and a fear or resistance to anything that threatens us. That's universal. Combined with the imperfect parenting and imperfections of the culture, we are addictive beings. We get addicted. I love this Gary Larson. I, you can look at it later if you'd like, but it's called At Maneaters Anonymous. It's, it's a bunch of bear and other creatures, and there's one of them standing up, big bear, saying, My name's Elmo. Well, it all started rather innocently, killing socially, you know, a game warden here, a tourist there, impressing the other guys, you know. But then I just couldn't stop. Sometimes I'd even stash an extra one in the crotch of a tree. (laughs) So we all, in some way, latch on to substitutes to get our needs met. And this also is the story of the Buddha's life. And I think it's really interesting that the main myth of Buddhism, the story of the Buddha's life, and whether you think it's an actual real story or a myth, it has some important truths. It describes what happens to all of us. That for the early part of his life, the Buddha was living out the agenda of his father. He was living in these pleasure palaces and very much kind of asleep and enchanted by you know, the next musical experience and the beautiful women and the aesthetics of the palaces and so on. He was both enchanted and deeply dissatisfied, as are we all when we live our lives organized around when's the next pleasure coming. So that was a number of years that the Buddha spent in that kind of enchanted, asleep, but dissatisfied way. Then he flipped to the other side. He lived in a very ascetic way, not in the most positive sense of the word, rather starved himself, subjected himself to enormous uh, 
dangers in terms of too much heat, too much coolness, rainy seasons. He lived the life of an ascetic and got very, very sick, denying his needs, he was malnourished, just not paying attention to his being. He almost died. Now, we know both sides of the equation. All of us at times know how it is when our world gets very, very small, when we're hooked on seeking pleasure, when we're hooked on having life be just a certain way, and we get into our craving for a certain food or for having certain drugs or sex or approval from someone else, and our entire experience takes the shape of that wanting. We get very, very small, contracted, It's very much in our culture. It's very much perpetrated by, created by our culture, this credo of not enough, go get more, we need more. We show pictures in our, all our commercials of beautiful young women. We deny death by dressing up dead people so that they look like they're alive and young and healthy. We have a million forms of denial, but mostly there's this sense of how to sell to people having more better, greater, more beautiful. In, Col- in Colorado, there's a river toad that when it gets excited, secretes this short-acting psychedelic that people take and they experience it for a short time as quite a high. Now, there's a similar looking species in Marin County, California, but those are poisonous. So in the Marin County paper, it said, warning, people should not lick the wrong species of toad. <laughs> And it ended with something like, lick toads at your own risk. (laughs) It has to be Marin, right? (laughs) If you know anything about California. The problem is not liking pleasure. It's getting hooked in terms of organizing our life around more and more. That sense of never enough. A few weeks ago in the New Washington Post, there was a description of Coca-Cola's annual corporate report. And I'd like to read you one paragraph of it. A billion hours ago, human life appeared on Earth. A billion minutes ago, Christianity emerged. A billion seconds ago, the Beatles changed music forever. A billion Coca-Colas ago was yesterday morning. Translation, a billion Cokes are sold every two days the world organized around Coca-Cola, you know? So it's a small world. We know how small it is when we find ourselves really resisting, really armored against the world around us and armored against our own inner experience. When we ignore our emotions, our loneliness, our desires, our longings, when we bury our aggression, our sexuality, when we try to control ourselves and control each other, it gets very small. We lose any creativity or spontaneity. Over the last few days, uh, a friend of mine came to town. We spent some time hanging out and talking about what was going on in his life. And one of the main themes that he described, which I have run into so much in recent years, was how he's gotten all these little flickers of recognizing just how enormously aggressive he really is down deep, this you know, primal reptilian nature 
that kind of wants to kill the enemy and be powerful and control the world and so on, and how he's organized his life to really not pay attention, to shove that under and be such a nice guy, and that the price he's paid is really had to do with intimacy. And this is such a real thing for so many of us, that there's, there's these basic elemental parts of our nature that we've been trained to say no to, to push under, to not like. And either we have sublimated in a culturally acceptable way, but still not really befriended, or else denied, ignored, judged, condemned. And what happens? We create a shadow. We create a, a not me or a not good me that stops us from feeling fully alive, are connected with other beings. We become dishonest with ourselves. We either say, this is bad, or we ignore it and say, this is not me. It's like George Carlin writes, I'm not a complete vegetarian. I eat only animals that have died in their sleep. (laughs) Not completely straight on things. And this, too, is our culture. We live in a culture that absolutely denies what's difficult. Again, from the Washington Post, this article was describing some of the um, responses to the efforts to, uh, for new clean air regulations. And these, this is from the industry. The effects of ozone are not that serious. But what we're talking about is a temporary loss in lung function of 20 to 30%. That's not really a health effect. That's one person. Here's another. Um, Ozone standard doesn't need to be changed. No ifs, ands, or buts. People exposed to ozone actually adapt to it. There's more. Um, One said that the EPA's cost-benefit analysis is rigged in favor of more regulations because it treats the value of the life of an older person who may be suffering from emphysema and who's going to die soon anyway, the same as that of a younger person who might have a bright future. And last, I like this one the best. This is from uh, another oil industry lobbyist. People can protect themselves from the health effects of high ozone levels. They can avoid jogging, the lobbyist said. Asthmatic kids need not go out and ride their bicycles. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? To deny what's really true, to push it away, to pull away life from life, is suffering. It's suffering to grasp on, try to hold on, more pleasure, not enough. It's suffering to deny. The Buddha, in again, his life story, went through both extremes, and his commitment to waking up was really a commitment to what has been called the middle path. Not to grasp, not to resist. So what is the middle path? I know when I first heard about the middle path, I was in high school, and I decided it definitely couldn't be for me because it would be like way too boring, you know? Mm-hmm. The middle path, like indifferent, gray, mediocre, medium, you know what I mean? It has those feelings to it. There's a little cartoon I clipped a few years ago that I keep in my office, and it has a picture of a dog, and he's asleep, and in the, ca- the caption it says, Zen dog dreaming of medium-sized bone. <laughs> 
So the middle way, the middle way as an internal experience, it's to neither grasp nor resist, means to live fully this moment, absolutely with our entire heart and mind and being, to live it fully and to let it go. This life is a changing flow and our chance at freedom is to open fully to the experience of the moments but not to hold on because we can't anyway. They come and they go. In lifestyle it translates to a sense of moderation. We can't live our moments if we're busy trying to accumulate, if we're all organized around having more. Nor can we live our moments if we're denying ourselves pleasure, denying the immediacy of the senses. So moderation, simplicity. When we have retreats, there's a sense of tapping into that, quite simple and yet feeling the fullness of the moments. Several years ago, one of the Asian teachers came to visit the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. Now, IMS is one of the oldest Buddhist centers in the West, and it's a lovely place. It's on 80 acres of mature woods, and they serve great food, and it's just a beautiful setting. So this Asian teacher came from an Asian monastery to see what it was like. What were these Westerners doing at their retreat centers? And at the end of the retreat, he said, oh, very nice, very nice. But then he said, you know what you have here? You're living the upper middle path. <laughs> <laughs> so in the West, we're kind of doing it our Western way. The Buddha taught that in the midst of all the swirling of pleasures and pain and so on, that our practice is to take the one seat. Now what is that one seat? It's not a detached observer, but to be in the midst of it all, participating, engaged, and yet not lost, still present, still here. So now, how do we do that in the face of these enormous, huge tendencies towards being addicted? Most of us have been wounded. Most of us have fixated on something, right? So how do we do this? For now, and this evening, probably as a way of exploring this a bit more, it'd be helpful if we each just reflected for a moment on where we feel snagged. So just take a moment, if you will. You don't have to sit up real straight, but be present, be here. And just ask yourself, what area of my life, what, and it's probably most useful for now just to think of behaviors. Is there some addiction, some sense of being compelled, overdoing, never feeling enough? For some, it might be smoking cigarettes, others overeating, others drugs or caffeine. For some, it might be a violent acting out of anger. For some, obsessive fantasizing, worrying, overwork, gambling. For some, a codependent relating, seeking of approval. For some, sleeping. For some, procrastinating. 
take a moment to sense, and you might be checking off each one of those. <laughs> That's okay. Pick one for now. Pick one that you'd like to kind of investigate a little more this evening, where you can sense that there's not a real freedom. There's not a light touch. It's overdone, and it traps your energy. And as you consider this one, it might be helpful to bring to mind the most recent time where you felt caught as best as possible. Seeing that situation, sensing what was going on, if there are other people involved, seeing them. If anything was being spoken, hearing that, mostly feeling the feelings of what it's like to be inside that addiction. Sensing the part of you that generates the addiction, that feels compelled, that inner part of you that really makes it happen. And taking a moment to feel what that's like, just to step into that inner part of you that's behind the addiction, that makes it happen, that promotes the behavior. Asking the part of you that you're connecting with, what is it that I most want? What am I really wanting as I do this? as I reach out for the food or the approval or go to sleep. What am I wanting? What am I most afraid of? What am I fearing? Just asking that question. In a sense, you're asking for the intention of the behavior. What are you trying to do for me? what bad might happen if I just didn't do this, if I didn't smoke or didn't eat or didn't procrastinate or didn't sleep. What would it be like to not do it? What would be so difficult? Discovering the wanting or fearing behind the addiction. You can continue just letting that question be there Open your eyes if you'd like. In the practice of waking up, of becoming free of conditioning, the gateway, the first step, is to recognize the contraction, to recognize, ah, this behavior, it's happening, to know what's happening. To not only recognize the behavior, but to feel fully what's under it, there can be a small, thin intellectual recognition. Oh yeah, addictive codependent behavior. Or there can be a whole body sense of, ah, yes, this, with all the contraction and fear and wanting. To begin to wake up out of addiction means to open into the fullness of what is this experience. To discover under all addiction, there's always fear and longing, and one usually takes precedent, but there's always some form of fear and longing. 
Just to ask if anyone be willing to share, what did you notice? What was, what was the fear of? What was the longing for underneath the addiction? Anyone? What did you notice? Yeah. So if you had to ask yourself, the urge to smoke, what, is, what does that do for you? What does the smoking actually do? What does it give to you? What does it satisfy? Okay, so the longing to smoke, first to get a response from the world in a certain way, and then to create an inner experience of detachment or well-being or ease or whatever, inner pleasure. Anyone else? What do you notice? (coughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I like what you said about uh, that most of it being based on fear. when I reach for anger to armor myself, or I reach for caffeine to to speed myself up, beneath both of those is the feeling of being out of control, that somehow I'm going to get hurt or left, and you know, if I blow myself up like a blow fish with anger, it, it makes me feel more powerful. Mm-hmm. Or if, you know, I, I reach for that Starbucks coffee, it's going to make me fast enough to get everything done that I need to get done that day. Mm-hmm. Even though intellectually, I know that doesn't make sense. Emotionally, when that fear hits, that's when I reach for the Did anyone hear that? So this is both with anger or with caffeine. How underneath them, there's a sense of fear, life's out of control, I'm going to be threatened. And then with both of them, they speed you up, they expand, blow you up so you look big, more dangerous, whatever. And, and yet they don't work, but they have, that, they have that drive to deal with fear. It's a really powerful energy. Anyone else? Yeah. I gave up my addictions. I was still in the I'm sorry, if you... Even if I give them up, I'll still be miserable, so nothing matters. So there's a sense, the drive is to make, to feel a little better because it's not going to, I'm not going to feel better anyway if I give them up. And that's a really important one. I'm going to talk more about the mental set that keeps them going. So thank you. Yeah, others. Yeah. Um, a, a fear of uh, 
not measuring up unless I work very, very hard. So underneath workaholism, this feeling of not, being, not measuring up, not being worthwhile, that's a real big one and real pervasive, right? Um, my addiction is rerunning, um, replaying, um, remaking their dialogue in a situation that would include that I didn't handle it right and I, and I may be able to check it. So I want to make it better. He's so, yeah. Which is for many of us the case that we see, okay, I want to be loved and I'm doing this mental obsessive thinking to try to fix things so people will then like me and that's the substitute and it doesn't really work but I'm absolutely wired to keep doing it. The first step is just to very deeply see it. Now, we can, at the end, we're going to do another little guided meditation. I'd like to invite you again to share, just to keep going a few more steps and see where we land up on this. We get addicted to substitutes. What we find is we have these deep fears, deep longing for love, and then we latch on and the substitute is, I'll think a lot so that I can fix something, or I'll take caffeine, or I'll get angry, or I'll smoke the cigarette, or I won't drop the addictions because it's not going to work anyway. We get addicted to what doesn't work. It's just a pale substitute, and yet it gives us something, or else we wouldn't stay hooked in. Another cartoon I have clipped in in my office. There's two homeless men on a park bench, and one's telling the other, I used to be a CEO of a major corporation, have my own plane, have a condo in Aspen, and on and on. And the other guy said, yeah, so what happened? And then the, guy said, the first guy says, well, I gave up caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> I clipped that because it was so personally relevant. <laughs> you know, we think that there's this thing that's going to make it all different. Not doing our addiction, and when you imagine that, okay, so here's this thing that I really feel compelled to do. <coughs> the not doing of it can feel like death. If it was easy to give up addictions, we would. It's hard. It's as hard as anything in the world because we are so organized around it. A very good friend of mine is a binge eater. Um, we've had been friends for a long time and I've kind of you know gone up and down through the times of abstinence and non-abstinence and she clipped this and sent this to me this is a um, this is an excerpt from Marion Woodman's book and I just like to read it to you because I think it's really powerful it goes like this consciousness demands suffering for the food addict when her hand is on the refrigerator door she said there's a voice that says, consciousness says, you're not hungry for what's in the refrigerator. Take your hand off the refrigerator door. Don't open it. 
walk across the room, flick the switch, dance to Chopin, feel your pain, live it, don't try to smother it. That may seem small, but if you're an addict, taking your hand off the door feels like death. The wild creature inside you that can't endure pain isn't interested in Chopin. To refuse to feed it food releases its rage or despair. To rechannel its energy demands conscious discipline every time the craving for escape threatens to overwhelm the ego. Discipline is a bad word in our culture. People associate it with having to do what they're told. But discipline is quite a lovely word. It comes from the same word as disciple, and it means seeing yourself through the eyes of the beloved, the one who loves you. And we all have that beloved within ourselves. We also have the wild animal that needs to be disciplined with love. We need all its instinctual energy and wisdom. The bottom line is letting ourselves express our full spirit without perverting it. What I love about this is honoring both that we have the beloved within us, the one that can love and discipline and guide us, and we have this wild animal, this conditioning that will latch onto a substitute if it can. They're both true. The sense of our separate self, the whole sense of who we are is organized around our perceived wants and fears. And for most of us, these wants and fears, we organize our activities to meet them. And so it becomes so strong and so defined that letting go of the activities that we've used as our substitutes is the same as letting go of our whole sense of who we are. I sometimes will do guided meditations just on what would it be like if you no longer avoided X, if you didn't sleep so much, if you stopped binge eating, if you didn't seek approval from all these people, if you stop procrastinating, what would it be like? And besides the fact that there's a sense of overwhelming, I can't tolerate the pain of that, there's a sense of such unfamiliarity. I wouldn't know who I am. This is death. First few lines of the poem, Letting Myself Die. There is no way of letting these waves wash through without drowning in this ocean. Seaweed tangling up the hopeful and clever one who is looking for a free ride to a clear place. The ticket is in the hands of those who are willing to die. The nature of the spiritual path is to keep on re-encountering this edge, this place where we have congealed as a separate self and yet are not free, to keep re-encountering what is the edge of what's acceptable, of to- what's the edge of what's tolerable, and gradually, with practice, to soften and open and stay put, to not do. All our conditioning is to reenact, to keep reenacting the same behaviors that we think are going to satisfy this wanting self. That's our edge. So meditation is practice in being with this edge. And we find it here on the cushion when we do formal practice, how to get drawn away again and again and be willing to come back and just be with what is. 
that can feel like death because our whole sense of, of a reality that we're familiar with is caught up in our thinking process. To just stay in this ever-changing flow of sensations can be mysterious and scary. And we find it in our lives where we're addicted. If we have that willingness to not do, to pause, and not all the way, all the time. If it's around food, just to pause a little and maybe eat just a certain amount or sometimes eat and sometimes not eat when we're talking about overdoing it. In a moment of not doing, of not lashing out or not taking the cigarette or not asking somebody else to soothe us or whatever our addiction is, in the moment of not doing, in the moment of pausing and attending and softening, we open out of the small self that keeps on redefining itself and reasserting itself into a much more vast and whole sense of being. This is what it means to become free from addiction. This is the territory in our lives that we all are invited to pay more attention to. Now, to be willing to do this, to be willing to first really look and see what's happening as we did in the guided meditation. What does it feel like? What's under it? And then step two, to pause, to not act out of it, but rather, ah, stay put, feel it fully, live it. To be willing to do that takes trust. Now, what do we have to trust? You can ask yourself that. What would I have to trust? to not do the addiction. It's not that we won't die, because truth is that we will. We both die in small ways and in big ways, so we can't trust in that. What we find, that the only thing it's possible to trust and that's deep enough, is to trust that as we let go into this changing life, we keep awakening. Our hearts keep awakening. We all trust that some. We wouldn't be here. We would not be drawn to a path of presence, of mindfulness, a path that takes courage if we didn't have some of that trust that by being present, our hearts wake up. We all have it some. This is called trusting Buddha nature, our inherent capacity for compassion and wisdom to wake up. And each one of us, at least most people I know, struggle daily with not trusting, with feeling caught in our conditioning, feeling out of control, feeling compelled to grasp and to defend, feeling a sense of failure. And I've talked about this before as being what's called the big squeeze you know, that we intuit our Buddha nature, our hearts, our awakening, and we're daily faced with our conditioning to get tugged around, to get caught. Waking up is becoming aware of both of those forces in us, both the forces of conditioning and dukkha, that means suffering, and this natural, inevitable awakening of our beings, of our hearts. Now, what happens when we start sinking, when we get caught in the addiction, caught in this, the thought that, well, if I drop my addiction, it's all, I'm going to only feel more miserable? 
I can't do it. What's happening? When we look closely, what we find is that we've lost sight of the big picture and we're just believing certain thoughts about ourselves at those times. And the thoughts usually come down to, I can't handle this, and maybe later, but definitely not now. You know, the diet starts tomorrow, right? A friend of mine says that whenever he starts suffering, he asks himself, what thought am I believing right now? And the thought always has something to do with, I'm not enough, I can't do it, I'm threatened, it's not going to work, I'm not okay, and maybe another time I'll try harder. So what is a healing attitude? What is the attitude that really is setting the grounds for freedom? It's remembering. It's remembering what's possible, remembering what we're capable of, and remembering that we're mortal. We don't have forever. This is a small excerpt from Zorba the Greek. Maybe you're right, boss. It all depends on the way you look at it. One day I had gone to a little village. An old grandfather of 90 was busy planting an almond tree. What, granddad, I exclaimed, planting an almond tree? And he, bent as he was, turned around and said, my son, I carry on as if I should never die. I replied, and I carry on as if I was going to die any minute. Which of us was right, boss? It's about remembering. We don't have that long. This moment really does count. And we have unlimited capacity to wake up, to open our hearts, to touch freedom. They're both true. This awareness is one that can be cognitive, but doesn't work until it becomes cellular. And so we practice meditation. When we meditate, the trust in what's possible is in our bodies because moment after moment, when we actually stay put, we pause, we touch the experience of just what's here and now, we discover we have room for it. We discover that through presence, we do open up our hearts, we do become more compassionate. It's a cellular learning. Now, all spiritual paths offer modes or ways to remember, to remember this, to remember that we can trust our nature, to remember not to wait, that now counts. In Buddhism, the ways of remembering have been called the triple jewel or the three refuges. And just for a moment, if you will, because we're going to end with a guided meditation, just to sit up and just sense these three refuges. We've done them here before. The first refuge is to take refuge in our Buddha nature, in the Buddha, which means to take refuge in the truth of our awakening hearts. That each one of us here does not need to look outside. That enlightenment, freedom, 
awakening is not happening in some other being 2,500 years ago or in the future. It's what's happening right now, our own heart-minds awakening. So we take refuge in the Buddha, that's the first refuge, in this awakening being. We take refuge in the Dharma, in the practices, the truths, the path that points us again and again to our own awakening being. And we take refuge, the third, in Sangha, our community, that we belong, we are interconnected with the whole world of beings that are awakening. Now this first refuge, awakening in the Buddha, is the refuge that allows us to know what's enough that the truth, the freedom, is right here and right now. Described so beautifully in a poem by Zen Master Genza called The Rainy Season. Trailing my stick, I go down to the garden's edge, go out through the pine gate. The floods have washed away the planks of the bridge. Shouldering our sandals, we wade the narrow stream. I dabble in the flow, delighted by the shallowness of the stream, gaze at the rocks, admire how firm some of the stones rest. The point of life is to know what's enough. Why envy those others? With the happiness held in one inch square heart, you can fill the whole space between heaven and earth. The point of life is to know what's enough. When we take refuge in Buddha nature, we take refuge in a sense of wholeness, wisdom, compassion, which is within all beings. Then we take refuge in the Dharma. We discover our nature, our connection, our wholeness through practice, through intentional practice, formal and informal, of touching the moment again and again in a real and mindful way. And we take refuge in the Sangha, in the community. We're not working to liberate a separate self. We open our heart-mind to discover inherent connectedness, relating to life within and with all beings. This is Rumi. We are the night ocean filled with glints of light. We are the space between the fish and the moon while we sit here together. Facing our addictions, our suffering, doesn't work if it's done out of judgment. I shouldn't be doing this addictive behavior. Out of fear, heavy-handedly. The only way that we free ourselves is when we free ourselves out of love, out of care. The Jungian archetypes of both the warrior and the lover are really the two that we can bring to working with addiction. The warrior who has the courage to face in a totally honest and direct way, what is this? What's happening now? And the lover who sees the suffering of addiction and holds with great tenderness and care what is seen. So we end tonight 
in that spirit with a guided meditation to again just reconnect and invite you to reflect on the addiction you brought to mind earlier. To again bring it to mind in a way that's as real as possible for this moment. To sense what's compelling. The need to grasp, to worry, to plan, to eat, to smoke. Take some moments as you did before just to experience what it's like, if you can, to feel the grip of it. To sense the forces underneath the wanting, the fearing, in a very honest, direct way. And letting that all be there by just pausing, a willingness to sense the fullness of it, feeling trapped, feeling driven, wanting, fearing, And then take a few moments now, if you will, to sense the presence of the beloved, whether that for you is some image or sense of a deity or a god or a spirit guide, whatever represents compassion and honesty. It could be without form or with form. But take some moments to look through the eyes of the beloved at your own addicted self. Seeing the suffering, the drivenness, the smallness, the longing to be free. Looking at your own addicted self through these eyes of one who is compassionate, who sees, and offering whatever you'd like to yourself by way of a message, a gift, a prayer, anything that might help on this path of freedom. and offering from your own awakened heart to the places in you that are still caught. It's a beautiful relationship. Sitting back in your own sense of body-mind, feeling the place of being caught as well as the place of heart, and sensing yourself sitting in a room with a whole number of people 
that are struggling with the same longings and fears and that are bringing that same sense of awakened heart of caring to the longings and fears. Sangha, community, offering your prayer to all those that have gathered that we may all be free from addiction, from suffering. And then opening the awareness to include all beings, because all beings struggle with these same forces, and all beings long to be free. offering the prayer to all beings. May we all be free from suffering. May our hearts awaken. May we live fully. May we love fully. And then closing the meditation as we open tonight with the universal sound current of OM chanting from the heart, we begin just by taking a deep in-breath and then out-breath. And then inhaling deeply. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.